Mark chapter 6. We have a meeting here of John the Baptist and a very wicked man, um, King Herod. We're told the story of how this very godly man ends up. And verse 14 through 29, we'll be looking at. I'll read if you'll follow. <clears throat> We're told that now King Herod heard of him. And there is a reference there to hearing of Christ. For his name had become well known. And he said, and of course this is after the fact that John the Baptist has already been uh, beheaded. He said, John the Baptist is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. Others said, it is Elijah. And others said, it is the prophet. In other words, it's the prophet that Moses spoke of. Or like one of the prophets. But when Herod heard, he said, this is John, whom I beheaded. He has been raised from the dead. So a guilty conscience here at work. For Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, uh, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. And because John had said to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife under Mosaic law. Therefore, Herodias held it against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not, at least not yet. For Herod feared John knowing that he was a just and holy man, and he protected him. And when he had heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. And then an opportune day came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a feast for his nobles, the high officers, and the chief men of Galilee. And when Herodias' daughter herself came in and danced and pleased Herod and those who sat with him, the king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you want, and I will give it to you. He also swore to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to the half of my kingdom. And so she went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And immediately she came in with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, yet because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he did not want to refuse her, and immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought, and he went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. And when the disciples heard of it, they came and took away his corpse and laid it in the tomb. And with that, let's pray. Lord, uh, we are thankful for the protections that you have afforded us. We thank you, Lord, we live in a country, in a land, where, Lord, there is, a, 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 there is still at least a sense of, of common decency and morality. Yet we know, Lord, that's because of you. Lord, because of your, the impact of, of, of Judeo-Christian thought and um, just the impact of the church over the course of, of, of centuries. But Lord, as we read the story, we're reminded that this was really the first persecution, the main persecution that began to come against the, the ministry of our Lord Jesus. 
And Lord, as we uh, think of these things, the church around the world presently suffers, Lord, uh, like this, um, and, e- and even worse. So, Father, we, uh, we're grateful and we're thankful, but we pray, Lord, that we would be faithful to do your bidding. Lord, help us, we pray, to be a light in a dark world. Help us, we pray, to witness, Lord, to those that are outside of uh, the, the church as of yet. Lord, we thank you for the opportunities. Lord, and as we look at John here, we realize that this opportunity that he spoke, Lord, uh, about and to these important people, that, Lord, it cost him greatly. And, Lord, whenever we will be faithful to you and witness to you, it may cost us something, maybe not our heads, maybe not to that degree. But, Lord, we know that whenever we speak of you, it can cost a friendship. But, Lord, help us, we pray, to realize that, Lord, there are things that that need to be said. There's truth that needs to be spoken, Lord, to our culture, to those that don't know you as of yet. So give us, we pray, the mind of Christ. Give us, we pray, a compassionate heart. Help us, we pray, to see, Lord, the need that's all around us. And, Lord, it's not so much a material need at all, Lord, but it's really a spiritual need, a need for Christ, a need to turn to you, And, Lord, we pray that you'd help us to be instruments, Lord, we ask in your hands. Lord, to point people, Lord, to you and to your grace, to your truth, and to a relationship with you. So, Father, we commit this time to you this morning, and we thank you for this. We thank you for your word. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. Thank you for truth. Lord, speak, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we see two main characters in our story here today, and I'm speaking of John the Baptist and Herod. And these two could not be more diametrically opposed or on polar opposites. Um, you know, when you think about Herod, uh, he was a kind of a, a maniacal guy, came from a very strange family. The family was um, just uh, filled with intermarriage and incest and things of that particular nature. Uh, power-hungry kind of guy. Uh, very much, you could say, he was a feudal-type king. Uh, ruling over his people, the, 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 you know, the Herod family, when they ruled over a, a group of people, uh, it could be very brutal at times. And if you remember, uh, King Herod, the, Herod I, um, when he heard about the birth of Messiah, uh, that he wiped out all the children in Bethlehem in those districts on two years old and under. Uh, so this is the kind of people that we're dealing with. And then you look at John the Baptist. What an incredible guy. Uh, when you look at his life here, uh, prophesied about him in Isaiah chapter 40, that he would be the voice, you know, in the wilderness, um, that he would be the forerunner, if you will, for the Messiah. Uh, had a miracle birth, uh, parents that were basically too old, um, in, in a sense, sort of like an Old Testament story, they were too old to have children, and so they're given uh, uh, just a, a very, uh, you know, miraculous kind of uh, birth uh, and pregnancy with, uh, with John. His father was a priest. He came from basically a priestly family. And, uh, and interesting, too, that you find that he's filled with the Holy Spirit in a prenatal kind of way. Uh, remember when uh, Mary comes, the babe, you know, in Elizabeth's womb, it just leaps uh, at, the, at the greeting of, of Mary. Uh, also, too, that he was a Nazarite, uh, which was a sort of a very deep kind of commitment someone would have toward the Lord that they wouldn't cut their hair, um, they wouldn't touch any dead body. They wouldn't drink any wine, any alcoholic beverages. And wine always basically, it was a symbol of joy. Um, and uh, so if somebody was a Nazarite, uh, 
they would, uh, you would, you would notice it. You'd probably notice it if it was a man by their hair, you know, hanging halfway down their back, you know, kind of a thing. And he was one of those. Um, kind of very separate in a sense. It was a, sort, of, sort of a separatist kind of a lifestyle. Um, you know, people in a sense probably thought that, you know, John, he, he lived out in the desert. He, he communed with God uh, in a very deep kind of way. And pe- people probably thought about John, well, that's probably good for him to stay out there. He doesn't kind of fit in, you know, to our culture and our, and our particular society. Uh, he ate bugs. We're told that he ate grasshoppers. Uh, and, and ate wild honey. I imagine if maybe you walked up to John uh, and you had a conversation with him, uh, he didn't care at all about fashion, uh, you know, about what he was wearing. He would wear a camel, and that was something that um, uh, people like Elijah wore, uh, you know, a, a camel, um, you know, cloth garment. Uh, very itchy kind of a thing if you ever had a camel hair coat. Um, and I would imagine if you, you, you had a conversation with this man, you'd look at him, and he might have a wild look in his eye, and you heard about maybe his preaching, and his, his message was basically to repent. Uh, you'd look at him, and maybe he would have some grasshopper legs, you know, in his beard or something like that, and you think, you know, this is God's man? Uh, and nevertheless, yes, this, you know, Jesus said, of those born among women, there's no one greater than John. So he was actually, the, you know, the greatest prophet, and the greatest individual that really came out of it, because he was really an Old Testament kind of guy, uh, to come out of that whole particular time. Uh, and again, this was God's estimation of him. So John was a man of tremendous courage. He had bold faith. He would speak whatever was on his heart. And we find here that he rebukes the king. And uh, in that culture, that was a very risky thing to do. Uh, to speak against these kings would just order you, you're in prison, and you're dead, you know, that quickly. Uh, but again, John, because of his faith in the Lord, he, he was a bold man. He, he was the kind of guy that was fearless. Uh, he would say anything, um, perhaps maybe in his repertoire of Scripture, there wasn't Ephesians 4.15 yet, but it said, speak the truth in love. Uh, he was the kind of guy that he would just sort of boldly proclaim, proclaim the truth, even though it cost him greatly. It cost him his life. But the fact of the matter is, when you think about John, he was a guy who was faithful to the end. Totally faithful to the Lord right to the very end, and he had a very short life. Uh, Remember, he was born uh, roughly around the same time Jesus was, and so uh, here he dies, basically. His his ministry is fulfilled. His ministry was about a year and a half long, and it's fulfilled roughly within a year and a half as he's proclaiming, you know, the the, the message of the gospel. And, uh, And remember, we're told that he was... You know, people, multitudes of people will come to his baptism. And uh, the religious authorities of the day came to his baptism. <laughs> and, uh, you know, when you think about how to minimize your church, you know, how, how to uh, reduce your church down to a small group, and he saw the religious authorities coming, and he said, you brood of vipers. <laughs> That'll shrink the church real quick, you know. And he says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And this is the kind of guy that John was. He was a fearless preacher, you know, of truth. And we find also, too, that um, he certainly had the Lord's commendation um, and approval. Now, in verse 14, if you remember last time, uh, the 12 went out. They were commissioned to go out, preach the gospel, heal the sick, raise the dead, uh, perform miracles, do all that kind of stuff. Uh, and as a result of those things kind of happening, uh, the name of Jesus began to really get you know, spread in, a, in, a, in just a, a wider variety, and people began to hear of what was taking place. 
uh, through the ministry of Christ. Remember, they were just simply an extension of what he was doing. Uh, he could only, in a sense, you know, be one, in one place at one time. And so he commissions the 12 to go out, just like in a sense, remember Matthew 28, he commissions us. We're to represent him. Not that we have power to raise the dead. Um, you know, we pray for the sick. We certainly do that. We preach the gospel. And I think, you know, the greatest, the greatest miracle is seeing somebody come to Christ, seeing a heart change, seeing a life, the direction, the trajectory of someone's life just change. Man, that's the greatest miracle. That's better than any kind of, mir- uh, you know, a miracle of physical healing. Because that's an eternal thing. When someone comes to Christ and they open up their heart and their life wonderfully transforms and changes and moves in a totally uh, different direction. So here in verse 14, Herod hears about the ministry of Christ through all these things that are taking place. But as a result of that, his guilty conscience is stirred. Remember, by this time, he's already he's murdered John. And, uh, you know, he thought as a king, you know, he could... He could do that. Kings did that. I imagine there's probably a lot of people he put to death. But there was nobody he put to death in a sense like John. And, and, and here we find as God has, you know, the, there's something about the conscience. It, it, you know, it, it's, the, it's that internal voice of God in, in a sense. It's not the conscience isn't perfect. Um, the conscience can be so um, marred, if you will, uh, and violated that eventually it doesn't work anymore. But it's, it's, it's an interesting thing when you see how the conscience and how it works, even in children. I can remember raising my kids. And, uh, you know, when they would do something wrong, and they would know it. You wouldn't even have to tell me, oh, what are you doing there with that? And then, oh, you know. But when they were doing something right, uh, you know, their, their conscience bore witness uh, to that. And it's like, and, and, you, and you see it there because you haven't really had time to inculcate very much you know, moral teaching to a child, to you know, a little two-year-old, three-year-old kid. You just really don't have that kind of, you know, that kind of time to invest all that. You know, yeah, this is right and this is wrong. But it's interesting. They know intuitively and instinctively something is wrong. And we know that as well. Uh, I thank God that there is a, you know, there's still a certain sense of morality, you know, in our culture. Even though within the educational system, those things are challenged all the time. They're challenged in our culture. Uh, but again, God has placed that little, that still small voice, you know, in, in our hearts uh, that we know that when something isn't right, that it isn't right. When something is wrong, that it's wrong. And we see that at work here in this man. Now, here's what's happened. Here, here's the background. He had um, a trip to Rome. Remember, uh, these are basically, these, these kings um, and uh, governors and so forth. They're puppets of Rome. Rome controlled the world at that particular time. So he's in Rome, and he, and I, and I don't know if his brother, his half-brother Philip was there, but obviously his wife Herodias was there. They struck up a friendship, had a relationship. Actually, he seduced her. Um, and so she divorces her husband, and she remarries uh, Herod Antipas here. So John's preaching, what it does, it, it just exposes them. There's something about the truth that it, it, you know, when you speak the word of God, when you speak the truth, that's a way of exposing. It's, you know, God's word is like a light, or it's like a surgical instrument. It, it reaches down, and you never know. You never know exactly. Uh, you may sometimes, just in a very matter-of-fact kind of way, uh, begin to share some truth uh, because maybe there has been a grid developed in our lives because of, of we've read the Bible um, you know, we certainly, you know, we, we know certain principles of truth, and so sometimes they come out in a conversational way, 
And uh, you, may, you may discover when, you, when you're in that kind of a conversation with somebody who's an unbeliever, all of a sudden maybe they're offended. They're offended at, you know, the world right now is offended at the Bible, okay? If you, if you don't know that, okay, you, you have to understand the world is very offended at Bible truth and, um, and, and the world is constantly challenging, you know, what we believe. And so, you know, they have an interesting way of sort of treating the Christian um, sort of like some, you know, sub-creature, some primitive kind of individual that, you know, how can you believe that, you know, kind of thing. And yet it's been the precedent. You look at some of the, the modern morality that we have today, and it's new stuff, man. It's new stuff in the last 10, 20, 30 years, and they act like it's been the precedent for thousands of years. The things that we believe, you know, relative to morality and truth are things that have been a precedent. For th- you know, it's like they, they, you know, the, the abortionist. You know, they talk about like as if abortion has always been, you know, the, the, you know, the, the, the rule, the law. It hasn't been. And it wasn't precedent for thousands of years until 1973, and that all changed. And, um, you know, so, you know, the world has its own brand of, of morality. And, and when we engage people, and I think we have to be careful not to be afraid of that. Uh, we don't want to be offensive. I, I don't think it, it serves any purpose um, to get judgmental or to get offensive with people. I think we need to have the right tone. Uh, I think we need, the Bible says, speak the truth in love. And so as we, as we you know, speak it you know, into a situation, it's illuminating. And sometimes people may just simply react to the truth because the truth comes in. And if it's not truth, there is darkness there. And, and the darkness has a way wonderfully of bringing illumination and sometimes, I don't know if it's ever happened to you, it's happened to me, that, that the truth has hit my life, and it hit my life in such a way that I was sitting in the middle of a congregation, and the truth hit me, and it was so powerful to me that what the preacher said, that I thought everybody was aware of my condition. The truth can do that. It can so illuminate a heart and a mind that a person thinks that everybody around me knows that hit me. <laughs> so, I mean, don't be surprised if you get a negative reaction when you speak truth, you know, into someone's life and into someone's heart. And I think sometimes, too, uh, when we get that kind of reaction, I, I, you know, I think we sometimes maybe look at it in a negative way. I think it's a good thing. I think God's striving with that person. I think God is reaching out to that person. He's allowing his truth to, to, to minister you know, to that, to that need, you know, to that person's need in their life, which they don't even know. I mean, how many of us, when we, were, we began to first hear the gospel and hear truth, we, we, how many of us really knew we needed to be saved? Uh, we don't. Uh, it's, a, it's sort of a dawning kind of a revelation. It's a progressive kind of thing where you realize, you know, I need to give my life to Christ. I, I can't manage this by myself. And uh, that's a wonderful revelation. Uh, that's the beginning of it. And, and then once you come to Christ, you realize that you just simply can't run your life. It, you know, we try. We're, we're educated to, to do all those kinds of things. But we kind of, we, we, we discover that how quickly life, you know, when we're trying to manage it, when we're trying to control it, it spirals out of control. And oftentimes that's when the Lord steps into our life at that particular time to rescue us and to basically hand out, hold out the, the, the hand of grace and mercy to us. So John's arrested. He's placed in a dungeon. And again, Herodias, obviously being a very vindictive kind of lady, uh, an individual, um, she wanted to kill John. And uh, here she's going to wait for her opportunity, and that opportunity is going to come. 
And we're told here in verse 16, Herod again says, this is John. He's thinking Christ is John because why? Same spirit. You know that when you and I share the gospel and share the truth, we, we have the same Holy Spirit that was on the prophets of old. We have the same Holy Spirit that was on the apostles. We have the same Holy Spirit that was working within the church. And so he's thinking it's he's, he's thinking Jesus is John because why? This guilty conscience, whom I've beheaded, he has been raised from the dead. Now Paul in Romans two explains why he was thinking this. Over in Romans chapter two, you don't have to turn there. If you do, it's chapter two, verses fourteen and fifteen. And Paul explains to us what's at work, you know, because God has created us and he's created this conscience, this sensitivity to right and wrong. And like I said earlier, that could be uh, basically, um, the Bible calls it searing, uh, where it's so damaged, it's so ignored and violated that it simply doesn't work like perhaps maybe it used to. But nevertheless, God has, has, has put that within. And again, this guy's, a, this guy's a really wicked guy. And yet we find that his conscience is still at work here. God is still trying to reach out to him. But Paul said this. He said, for when the Gentiles do not have the law. Now remember, he's comparing the Gentile world to the Jewish world because they had the scriptures. They had the scriptures at this point for, you know, basically, you know, for 1,500 years they've had the scriptures. Uh, and and as, a, as a result of that, there's a certain kind of moral, you know, training that takes place. I, I can remember hearing that uh, there, were, there were in certain uh, uh, Jewish cultures and societies that their children were able to even uh, remember, quote, from, from uh, you know, just uh, from memory, uh, the, the Pentateuch or the, 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 the five, first five books of the Bible. Can you imagine that, being able to remember that much Scripture? And so they had a, the Jewish culture clearly had an edge, uh, just like in a sense the, the Christian culture today in raising our children. We have a tremendous edge uh, when you think about the unbelievers that are out there in our culture, in our society. You know, sometimes you wonder, you know, why, you know, how could this happen? Why do people do things like that? Well, they don't have any moral bearing. They, you, grow up, you can grow up in a home now where it's a, it's a single-parent home. Where there isn't any moral training at all, you don't really get that, you know, in the culture, in the society. And so a person thinks, oh, you know, whatever feels good, you know, do that. But Paul goes on here to say, he says, uh, the Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature, they do the things that are in the law. These, although not having the law, are a law unto themselves. Verse 15, who show the work of the law written in their hearts. God writes it in the heart. He writes truth, you know, in a sense, in someone's heart, in their conscience. I can remember before I knew Christ. It was 25 years before I knew him. And I knew what was right. I knew what was wrong. In a sense, there were things that even though I I violated that, I did things that were wrong, I knew it. They show the, the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness between themselves, um, their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. And that's the way oftentimes, you know, it works. If you excuse yourself, a person excuses himself over and over and over again. Uh, The conscience doesn't speak so loud. 
it, it, it gets really, in a sense, darkened because it's so violated. You know, Randy Alcorn, I don't know if you ever read any of his stuff. He's an author, a pastor, an author. And um, uh, there's two of his books that I think are phenomenal. The one on heaven. If you have questions about heaven, it's a great book to get. I think they have an abridged, uh, revised version, a shorter version. Uh, but he has, he's also written a book that is actually my favorite. It's called If God is Good. And it's, it's basically written on the premise that, you know, if God is good, why is there evil in the world? You know, you know why do people do you know, the things they do? You know, why does God allow it kind of a thing if God is good? And, uh, and it's not an easy read, but it's, it's powerful. And I, I can't tell you how many times I keep referring back to that particular book because there's so much rich uh, truth in it. But here's an excerpt from that book from Randy Alcorn about the conscience. He says this. He says that God has planted in all his image bearers. That's us. Okay? Not the animal kingdom. Okay? We're his image bearers. Uh, he's the Trinity. We're an inferior Trinity. We're body, soul, spirit. He's Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God has planted in all his image bearers an ability to recognize good and evil in their consciences. Accounts for why people do not believe, uh, accounts for why people do not believe Scripture can nonetheless feel guilty when they do wrong and feel good when they do right. Even those who reject the claims of the Christian worldview. Now, I want you to listen to this because our world basically today rejects the Bible. They reject the Christian, the Judeo-Christian worldview. We teach against it in our educational system. You can get the Koran in the school, but you can't get the Bible in the school. It's amazing, isn't it? <laughs> Even though some 80-some percent of, our, of laws on the books find their roots in the Bible itself. Even those who reject the claims of, of our Christian worldview should acknowledge that it does, in fact, offer a moral foundation upon which to discern good and evil. But they should ask themselves whether, without realizing it, they sometimes borrow from our Christian worldview. Because their own worldview cannot provide a foundation whereby to judge good and evil. And we see it all the time. Situational ethics. In other words, your ethics, there, there's, no, there's no moral authority. That's why when we, we talk to people about the Bible, there's a moral authority. They'll say, no, there's no moral authority. You have your truth, I have my truth. And situational ethics, whatever the, whatever the situation dictates, use that particular ethic. But it simply doesn't work. And when you have that kind of argument with someone, maybe you want to do this, slap them in the face. And they'll say, why did you do that? That was wrong. Well, wait a minute. If whatever feels good, I can do. If there's no real ethics, no real morality, then I can do whatever I want to do. It's not good or bad. See, their, their argument doesn't hold up. And that's why, they will, that's why they will conveniently borrow from our Christian worldview of morality and right and wrong. Because there's, there's something deep within our, our spirit that says situation ethics is wrong. That there is a right, there is a wrong. And that's what's going on in this, inside this man. 
he realizes, even though he, he has all the reasons and excuses why he can take somebody's head off. It's wrong. Therefore, Herodias, verse 19, held it against him, against John, wanted to kill him. But she could not. Uh, Herod uh, feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man and protected him. And when he had heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. So again, she's got this murderous grudge. She's going to try to pull it off here. Um, but her husband has been his protector. And, um, and again, here we find, as we look at uh, verse 20, Herod is influenced. He's influenced by truth. He's, drawn, he's being drawn, in a sense. He's being drawn to Christ. That's why the Bible says that today... That's why it's important, I think, that, that there's a time, you know, somebody put it like this one time, that there's a tide in the affairs of men, that you need to capture it at the right time. Uh, and I think that's true spiritually speaking, that there's an opportune time when God is speaking truth into a person's life. And that we don't know exactly how long it was that John had this opportunity to speak into this king's life. It was probably more than days, it was probably more than weeks, could even have been a couple of months, we don't know. But here this man is being drawn by truth, is being drawn by the Holy Spirit. He feared John. There's something about a holy life that is frightening to evil. You remember the, uh, when we talked about the, uh, the, the uh, demon-possessed guy from Gadara? And here he is filled with all kinds of demonic power. Uh, and the poor soul is tormented, and, and, he, and he runs to Jesus, and at the same time, he says, what do I have to do with you? And remember the demons were, were speaking through the man? Do not send us into the abyss. <laughs> and I imagine there was this fear. There was this fear deep in the heart of this man, because he was standing before a holy man, a righteous man, a guy that <laughs> had boldness, and courage. And I imagine when he spoke to this king that even though he was a king, he probably tried to, you know, he probably tried to, you know, hold it back, probably not tried to show any fear because, hey, uh, I'm the king. But this was the truth in the spirit of God, trying to break that facade, trying to break that pride. Oh, man, I'll tell you what, it's it's a miraculous thing when God finally gets through into a heart of a man. And breaking through all that natural resistance, that pride, that unbelief, and all these other things that can exist, you know, within our hearts, within our lives. And I think God's truth was illuminating this man one inch at a time. But there's something about the darkened mind that can only handle small doses of truth at one time. Remember, the, it was one of the other herds um, when, when Paul was before him. And, and remember it said that... Uh, you know, that uh, Paul was speaking about the gospel, and he says, okay, enough, I heard enough, out of here, you know, kind of a thing. And, and see, when the truth goes into a darkened soul, it can only process, it can only handle. I think there are people like that today, that they hear truth, maybe they hear truth from you, and it's like, I don't want to be around them anymore. And then all of a sudden, they show up a month later, or they come to church a month later, because they, they could only take that truth in a very small dose. That's what Herod was going through at this particular time. You know, somebody once said this, the truth will set you free, but it'll make you miserable first. A lot of truth that in there. I found also, too, the truth will set you free, but you know what? It may make you angry first. I've seen that, I've seen that more than once, where a person reacts in anger, 
um, we just uh, one of the one of the fellows uh, uh, was um, has a Bible study, and he sends out a message. He sends out a message to all the guys in his Bible study that they're meeting at a certain place. <laughs> And he gets back this message with all this whole list of profanities on it. Um, and uh, so somebody changed their number, and this person got their number. And, um, and they were getting these Christian messages in their box. And so I don't know how many messages I got, but, man, it was like, you know, every kind of expletive. Bleep, 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 bleep. You Christians, bleep, 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 bleep. <laughs> And, you know, I was, you know, we were kind of laughing about it, thinking, you know, God's after that guy. That was no mistake. The Lord's after him. And, and that's what's happening here on earth. The Holy Spirit God, of God is working on his soul. Aren't you glad God worked on you? I'm so glad he worked on me. And sometimes, you know, sometimes we're, you know, we're, 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 we're holdouts. Sometimes we're tough. And one of the things I said when I came to Christ is just, you know, 25 years old, you're, you're, you know, you're, you're still almost a babes in the wood at that point. I said, I wish I would have came to Christ before. And I look back, I look back, you know, at different events in my life, and I saw the fingerprints of God. I was just telling this story to somebody else. Uh, John McCain, you know, he passed away. He was a, he was a prisoner. Uh, I'm probably going to be going to see the Hanoi Hilton the famous, infamous prison when I get to Vietnam. I'm probably going to, that's probably, you know, it's almost like, I think it's like a museum or something. But he was in the Hanoi Hilton for like six years. And uh, he tells a story in one of, in his biography that they would tie daily, they would tie his hands behind him and then lift him up where barely he could be on his toes. He said it was excruciatingly painful. It was torture. He said, but then there was one guard that was assigned to me. And he would look, he would make sure no one was looking, and he'd loosen the rope and let me down. And John McCain did not know any Vietnamese, and this man, this Vietnamese um, soldier did not know any English. And John McCain is trying to communicate with him to find out, you know, just to talk to him and to find out um, what, what, you know, why. And the man took his foot. He took his foot, and he made the sign of the cross in the dirt. <laughs> he was a Christian. He was a Christian. And, and I think that was just one of those little things in John McCain's life. And I've read the story. I've read, uh, I've read the, the, the uh, uh, Harold Rutledge has written a book. He was a prisoner. He was a pilot, too, that was shot down uh, during the war. And uh, he was sharing how so many guys were impacted. And he, was, he grew up in this Baptist church as a kid. And, and he memorized all this scripture and stuff that you memorize in church, you know, type of thing. But he got married uh, and just drifted away from the Lord. But he ended up in prison for like seven years. And then all of a sudden, the scriptures are all coming back to him. And he starts sharing the scriptures with all the different guys. And guys start getting saved. And guys are saying, if it wasn't for the memorization of Scripture, I don't know what I would do. Yeah, God's Word. God's Word, powerful. And how God is, you know, at different points, at different times in our life. When we don't expect it oftentimes. 
you know, he is there to, to, to reach out and meet us in our situation, in our moment of need. Verse 21, this would not be a good day for the king. Here he's given an opportunity to, to obey the things that he has heard, no doubt, from John. And he had no idea that his greatest trial in life, the greatest test, would come on his birthday celebration. Sometimes, you know, we don't know when tests come. Tests also are opportunities. A great blessing can come out of a test. You know the Bible, do you know the Bible says about you and me that God does test the righteous? He doesn't just test those who, you know, don't know him, as he was here, in a sense, with, with Herod, but God does test the righteous. And so he doesn't realize, this man, that, that the greatest test of his life, in a sense, a life-defining test. You know, sometimes there are decisions that one can make that define the rest of their life. Sometimes there are decisions that we make can, can define the next maybe 10 years, 20 years of our life. But here's an opportunity that he has to believe and obey the things that God has spoken into his life. Now, these parties, looking at verse 21, uh, an opportune, opportune day came, uh, heard on his birthday, um, invited the nobles, the high officers, the chief men of Galilee. And oftentimes, again, these particular parties, they were drunken affairs. Also, too, the, they were attended by adult uh, entertainment of all sorts, basically prostitution. And when Herodias, Herodias' daughter herself came in and danced and pleased Herod and those who sat with them, the king said, ask me whatever you want and I will give it to you. I'll tell you what, that must have been a dance. That must have been some kind of dance, I'll tell you, for an order for him to say something like this. But you know something? There come moments, you know, in men's lives where they say foolish and stupid things. Ever been there? Ever been there? Yeah, I see you smiling. I've been there. You know, the funny thing is he says certain things, you can't take them back. You wish you could just grab certain words and ah, you know. But you say stupid things, you say foolish things, and, and, and unfortunately, there are consequences to them. And I guess these guys are filled with booze. And there's a whole pride factor here. He's the king. You know, here's all these nobles, these official people. And no doubt there were, there were probably some, some tribune um, or some legate, some official from Rome. This was basically a, a Roman puppet, this little kingdom there. It was a series of little, actually, you know, several little provinces and kingdoms. A lot of pride in this. It's his birthday. And he says, whatever you want, I'll give it, I'll give it uh, to you. And then he swore on top of that, whatever you ask me, I will give you to half of my kingdom. And I, don't, I don't think realistically anybody ever asked for half of a kingdom. You know why? You didn't wake up the next morning. <laughs> If you ask for half of the kingdom, you're done. And I think, too, maybe it's, it's even maybe even a spiritual thing. He's trying to maybe be spiritual because this is, this is sort of a page out of the book of Esther. Remember, Esther goes into the king, and you weren't supposed to, as a queen, you weren't supposed to go into the king unless he called for you. And so Esther and, 
you know, their, their friends there huddled up and prayed, and so she goes in. It was very important because the, the, the Jewish people, the lives of the Jewish people were at stake. So she goes in, and Ahasuerus says, oh, here's Queen Esther. Uh, and he, and he, makes that, he makes that offer to you, whatever you want to the half of my kingdom. So was it maybe Herod trying to maybe appear spiritual, you know, in this whole kind of thing? Well, we're going to really see, you know, how spiritual he is. This is going to be, you know, sometimes he say things and they're regrettable the next day. And this is going to not only be regrettable for that day, the next day, the, the rest of his life. Do you ever think about what you would t- want if uh, you were given a, a wish like that? Do you ever think about that? Hmm. What, what is it that I, you know, you know, I, I was giving a little thought. I thought, gee, it'd be nice to have one of those big palatial log cabins up in the Pacific Northwest. You know, 10,000 square feet, nothing, you know, nothing too shabby. 10,000 acres. I mean, there's all kinds of things. You know, we've got our bucket list, our wish list, and all that sort of thing. But you know what? I tell you what, at the end of the day, all I care about is my family. That's it. Because everything else is material. Everything else is temporary. Everything else is going to rust. Everything else is going to burn. The most important thing is uh, I'm, all I'm concerned about is my kids, their spouses, my grandkids. That's the most important thing to me that I want to see, that I want to be with me in eternity. So she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? What a gruesome request, huh? And again, it shows you the hatred that she had for John. For the truth. She said, the head of John the Baptist. Immediately she came in with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And you know, it's interesting too, when you, when you consider Herod here, I think no matter whatever John said to him, he had some advance warning, but his own words was his undoing. His own words here, he articulated his own demise. Of course, he was speaking in pride. Well, there's something wonderful about, something so safe about humility. And, and the thing about pride is we all have it. <laughs> Praise God, it isn't what it used to be. <laughs> But remember Jesus in, in Matthew um, eleven twenty nine, he said, I'm meek and lowly, learn of me. And, and I'll tell you what, that's been something I've been pursuing my whole life, uh, to learn about him, uh, to be like him. And I'll tell you what, that's not an easy thing. I discover how much of me is still left, you know, there uh, by my reactions, by my responses, you know, by the things that I think and go through my mind. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a lifelong quest. Now, here in verse 26, his defining moment, at this point, his conscience is still alive. It's on life support. <laughs> but his conscience is still alive at this particular point. And so what are the options that he has? He's got all these people, you know. He's the king. He's the head, he's the head dog. What he says goes. Everybody knows that. But here's all these important people in his presence. 
The king tells us this is exceedingly sorry. Oh, man, what did I say? Can't believe I said that. <laughs> but because of the oaths and because of those important people who sat with him, he did not want to refuse her. See, he could have confessed and said, you know what? That was wrong. That was hasty. That was wrong. That was foolish. I never should have said it. And, 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 and folks, we are not going to murder a man to entertain ourselves tonight. That's what he should have said. He had that option. He's a king. But again, the pride, if this gets back to Rome, if this gets back to Caesar, I'm going to look like such a fool. Again, that's the, the fear of man brings a snare, the Bible says. You know, and again, we all have this in us. It's endemic. You know, what we, how much we care about what people think. If you didn't care about what people think, you know you, you would look like this morning? You'd all have your bedroom slippers on and your pajamas on with a coffee mug. Because who cares? We all care. But we have to be very careful to not allow that to be the driving force in our lives because you know what? It's going to bring us into a snare. The fear of man. But what are they going to think? Here, they're ready to murder a man just to save face. I, I was talking <laughs> to somebody my age, uh, you know, the, the whole subject of Vietnam and so forth in Vietnam War. And, you know, early in the Kennedy administration, uh, with McNamara, the defense uh, secretary, they knew the war was wrong. But it got handed off to, you know, to, to uh, Lyndon Johnson. And you know what? It was a matter of saving face. Because we had lost at that point early, you know, you talk about mid-1960s, we probably lost, you know, uh, probably wasn't even 10,000 men at that particular point. Um, and it was a matter of losing face. And, and pride is one of those kinds of things. I don't want to look bad. Immediately, the king sent an executioner commanded his head to be brought, and he went beheaded, and they brought it back uh, to him on a platter. What a disgusting thing for them to do. What a wicked thing for them to do. But all the while, this man's wrestling with truth. He's wrestling with truth in his soul. And you know what? Truth lost. This guy chose, and that's what happens when somebody rejects truth. There's a dark path. Now, it may not be to this degree, but when we reject truth, we accept something less. We accept something dark. I want you to turn. Um, we have one final picture in Luke chapter 23 of this man. Interestingly, he finally gets a personal interview with Jesus, with the Messiah. Luke 23, verse 6. Now, Jesus has been apprehended. He's going to be crucified within the next probably 12 hours. He goes as a lamb to the slaughter. He's before these, 
He has three different trials before the religious authorities, before the government authorities, and before uh, King Herod. And Pilate, and again, we know Pilate's always wanting to wash his hands of this because he's got to make a decision. He's got to make the decision regarding a righteous man. So he's trying to pawn it off on Herod. And eventually it comes back to him. But anyway, when Pilate heard of Galilee, uh, he asked of the man that is Christ were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. Now when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad. For he had desired for a long time to see him because he had heard many things about him and he had hoped to see some miracle done by him. You know, in human nature, there's such a curiosity for spectacular things. That's why when you see Jesus performing miracles, the multitudes would just swell to the thousands. And we, we know that because he fed thousands of people. But there were a lot of people there just looking for just to witness the miraculous, you know, some kind of spectacular thing. Isn't there something curious? When, when you, have you ever been to a magic show? And, and to watch these guys do the things they do, there's something spectacular and curious about it. No, how do they do it? And, and Herod had the same kind of curiosity about Jesus. He had heard all that he had done. Well, maybe, you know, just maybe he's going to, you know, perform some miracle in my presence. But, you know, a miracle never saves anybody. Look at, look at, no doubt, the hundreds of miracles that Jesus did. And that very society put him on the cross. Sent him to his death. Great, I think the greatest miracle, you know what, is a changed heart. That's the greatest miracle. Because even if God heals one, of our part, one part of our body, you know, eventually we all die. But when he gets into your heart, gets into your life, and saves your soul, man, you're his that, that, that's eternal. Anyway, look at verse 9. When Herod questioned him with many words, many questions, but he answered him nothing. You know, it is a bad day when God has nothing to say to a man anymore. That's why, we, that's why when God is speaking truth to our hearts, that's when we've got to respond. What, what does Paul say? Now is the appointed time. Now is the day of salvation. Because there's a timing. God knows our hearts. He knows our life. He knows our situation. There's a time when he speaks truth into our heart. That's when our greatest need is. I think a lot of people reject the Savior. You know what? For, 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 for this reason. Not that they even disagree with that. Yeah, yeah. That, I, I agree with that. That's right. I need Jesus in my life. But you know, I, I just, I want to enjoy my life a little bit more. I want to have a little more fun. I need a little more time. <laughs> and what happens is that the, the heart becomes callous later on. And I want to tell you, all the fun that I used to have before I knew Christ you know what kind of fun that was? You wake up in the morning, the next morning, and you can't remember what you, where you were the last night. And you look in your wallet and all your money's gone. Oh, what fun that was. <laughs> and I'll tell you what, the enjoyment 
and the blessedness that I've had. And the wonderful thing is about the joy that God provides. You wake up the next morning and you're blessed. And you can remember where you were. <laughs> Questioned him with many words, but he answered him nothing. And here the chief priests, they're in the background, and the scribes, they're, they're accusing him. And then Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt and mocked him and arrayed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. You see, their treatment of Christ revealed the true, the true heart condition. You see, at this point in Herod's life, conscience was dead. It was alive before. Made the wrong choice. Didn't, didn't surrender to the truth that God had, had put before him. And that's why we need to do that. We need to allow the Lord, you know, he, he's our God. He's our creator. He's our maker. He's the lover of our souls. He knows best what he wants to do in our lives, what's, what he wants to build into our lives. So as we close this morning, if there's been anything that perhaps maybe has resonated with you that you need prayer for this morning, I want you to stand. I want to pray for you as we close. Got nothing to fear. It's just us and the Lord. So whatever your need is here this morning, we're just going to pray for that, for the Lord to bless, to touch, to help, to encourage. Lord, we look to you this morning. We open our hearts to you. We open our lives to your Holy Spirit. Lord, we need you in our lives. In your fullness, Lord. We don't want just a little dab of Jesus. We need your fullness. We need your life. We realize, Lord, we can't live without you. And so, Father, I pray that according to each one of these that have stood today, that you'd meet with them according to their faith as they've opened up their hearts and their lives. Lord, whether it's a spiritual thing, Lord, uh, perhaps maybe some need healing here today. Lord, you know, you know our lives, you know our, our course, our situation, our future. Lord, perhaps today for some, there's an uncertainty about the future. And I pray that you'd help them, Lord, to just place that future in your hands. That even though, Lord, we may not know the next step or what decision that we have to make, Lord, you do. And so how we pray you direct and guide and I thank you for these here, Lord, that have just wonderfully, simply, beautifully opened up their hearts and lives to you. Lord, fill, I pray. Fill with your Holy Spirit. We need you in us, Lord. We need to change. Lord, we need to have the mind of Christ, Lord, regarding important decisions, how we're to live, Lord, what we're to do. So, Lord, we commit these matters to you, thanking you and praising you, Lord, for all that you are going to do. Thank you, Lord, that you said that you have given us a future, Lord, and a hope. And our hope today is in you, in your spirit, in your grace. We ask it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.